0: Today is on the Christian calendar, the day of Pentecost, Uh, and it's a series also we've been in for the last couple of weeks where we've been exploring this idea of the giving of the Spirit. Um, It happens in John 20 at the end of John. It happens in Acts chapter 2, as you heard from our friend Kat last week. And this week we're going to explore how it happens in Acts chapter 10. But what's interesting about Pentecost is that it's about the Spirit, but it's also about sort of unpredictability of the Spirit. There's this great line attributed to Jesus in John chapter three, where he says to Nicodemus, the wind blows where it chooses and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. For Jesus, the Spirit has sort of this boundlessness, this, yeah, you can, you can kind of see maybe where and when it's working, but you can't contain it and you can't control it. And it seems like much of Christian history, unfortunately, has been an attempt to hem and box in the activity of the Spirit, this wildness uh, and, and this, this movement that is uncontrollable. So last week in Acts chapter two, you you heard a story where there's this there's this experience of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, and these first Jesus followers are filled with the Spirit, and then there's this rushing wind, there are these tongues of fire, and then there's the experience of working out the implications of it, working out what it actually means now to be empowered in this way. And today we're going to look at Acts chapter ten, where there's another experience of a group of people being filled with the Spirit in this way, and then some people who see it happen, trying to work out what it means and trying to work out what the implications of it are. This passage is often called the Gentile Pentecost. And there are reasons for that, which will become clear later. This is also a passage for me that early on in my faith shift and in what a lot of people call their deconstruction, this passage was significant for me because it invited me into a pattern of... Uh, valuing my experiences while also returning and wrestling with scripture in light of my experiences. And you'll see why that's significant in a bit. The central issue in Acts chapter 10 though, is this, can Gentiles belong to the Jesus movement? And if so, how do they find their belonging in the Jesus movement? You remember the Jesus movement began among Jesus Jewish followers Uh, That's where it started. And as the movement began to spread into the Roman Empire, you had people who weren't Jewish who wanted to be a part of this movement. And so the question became, can they become a part of this movement? And if so, what are the terms and conditions? What's the fine print on how somebody gets involved in this particular movement? And this week, our story in Acts chapter 10 begins, and we meet a guy named Cornelius. And instantly, when I think of Cornelius, I think of two particular images. One is that uh, the, the rooster on the box of Kellogg's cornflakes. I don't know if that pops up for anybody else. I think his name is Cornelius Cornflake or something like that. The other image that pops up for me all the time is Yukon Cornelius from Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, um, the, the Claymation. Uh, uh, Christmas movie. Um, so, I, you know, whatever image you want to assign to this Cornelius, you're welcome to. Here's what we know about this Cornelius. He lives in Caesarea, which is a uh, pretty significant town. He's a Roman centurion. And when you hear Roman centurion, think about it like this. He's a Roman military officer. If you were to go back and look at the rest of the, the gospel narratives, you'll find that Roman centurions, Roman soldiers were actively and, and significantly um, participating in the death of Jesus, all right, so th- this Roman centurion represents for Jesus' first followers, somebody who they would have considered to be an enemy, somebody who would have been the source, uh, at least uh, as a puppet of empire, it would have been the source of Jesus' death. We're told in Acts chapter 10 that this particular Cornelius, this centurion, is somebody that Luke in Acts, invents this term called God-fear or God-worshipper, depending on the translation. And it's a term used in Acts for Gentiles, non-Jewish people, who worship the Jewish God and perhaps participate in some of the rituals, but they don't fully convert to Judaism. So they have an affinity for, a connection with, some sort of interest in the, the Jewish God and the Jewish tradition, but they haven't gone the full way of conversion, And this guy, Cornelius, the centurion, this God-fearer, has a vision in which an angel tells him that he needs to send some people to a town called Joppa, and that when they get there, they're going to find somebody named Simon Peter, and they're going to invite him to come with them to Caesarea, and when they get there, he has a message that Cornelius needs to hear. Now, what's interesting is while they're on their way the next day, around lunchtime, this Simon Peter, who you probably recognize from being one of Jesus' inner circle, right, one of Jesus' disciples, Simon Peter is around lunchtime on a roof doing some meditation, and he has this vision, and in this vision, a giant sheet drops from the sky, and the four corners are spread out on the earth, and it contains all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds, and here's what the text says in Acts chapter 10. After the sheet drops down, he hears a voice saying, "'Get up, Peter. Kill and eat.'" But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is profane or unclean. So this divine voice speaks to Peter and says, get up, find something. You're hungry? Eat some lunch. And Peter essentially says to God, no, 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 no. I have never, I have never transgressed our purity laws. Which is an interesting sort of moment to be in when God gives you sort of this command, go do this thing. And you somehow are trying to like, I don't know, stay more faithful than God is on this thing, right? Like, no, 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 no. I've never and would never. The voice said to him again a second time, what God has made clean, you must not call profane. What God has made clean, you must not call profane. This happened three times and the thing was suddenly taken up to heaven. So he has this vision, this sort of trance-like experience where he has this conversation with God about this sheet full of animals that are unclean and he's being told to kill and eat something and he, he's resisting it. And it's almost like in this vision, Peter's trying to decide what's happening here. He's trying to decide if this is sort of a test, right? Is God testing me to see if I'll stick by what I know to be true and right? Is God testing me to see if I'll stay faithful? If God, is God testing me so that I'll remain orthodox? Or is God actually inviting me to do something beyond that which I've ever imagined? Is God calling me beyond the boundaries and barriers I've set up? Am I being tempted? Or is this an invitation to follow God into the unknown? And what really I have found, and this has been an interesting, as I've been reading the text over the last week, something interesting has popped up for me that I never had really paid attention to before. And it's location, location, location. And what I mean is the location where these folks from Cornelius come and find Simon Peter. It really matters. Peter is in a town called Joppa. And those of you who are maybe Bible nerds, maybe that word, that town Joppa sounds familiar. And if it does, it's because it pops up in another well-known story from the Bible. And it's the story of Jonah. Listen to how the book of Jonah begins. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai saying, go at once to Nineveh, the great city and cry out against it for their wickedness has come before me. Now, Jonah lives in Israel. Nineveh is in Assyria, the empire of the moment. And this particular empire, the Assyrians was threatening the very existence of Israel. And actually in the year 722, the Assyrian empire wiped out the Northern kingdom of Israel. And those tribes of Israel were lost to history as a result. So essentially, the divine voice is saying to the prophet Jonah, go to your enemy, go to the ones you most fear, go to the ones you most want to avoid. But Jonah set out to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, which is a hard word to say, and for some reason reminds me of tartar sauce, and I, I don't really know why. Um, but he goes down to Joppa, he finds a ship going to Tarshish, and he paid the fare, and he went on board to go with him to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Here's how the story of Jonah begins. God says to Jonah, go to your enemies. And Jonah instead goes to Joppa, and when he gets to Joppa, like this moment of decision, he gets to decide, will I go in the direction that I've been called to go, or am I going to go in another direction? Am I going to go toward my enemies? with a message of repentance? Or am I going to run away from the divine voice and my enemies and go my own way? And if you know the story of Jonah, you know that Jonah chooses to go the other way and eventually he ends up going to Nineveh. Location, location, location. Just as for Jonah, The city of Joppa is the point of decision. It's the place of decision. So for Simon Peter, Joppa is going to be the place of decision. Will he go with these Gentiles? Peter, as a faithful Jewish person, is not going to just readily be able to associate, but is he going to go? Is he going to go to this place of the unknown? Essentially, is this, this choice in the context that Acts is setting up. Is Peter going to go to his own version of Nineveh, Nineveh, which is Cornelius's house in Caesarea. Now a little bit of spoiler alert, Peter does go. Uh, He takes others with him. They go to Caesarea to meet Cornelius. And after they hear their coming, Cornelius has gathered all of his family and all of these other people who are in his house. So you can imagine Simon Peter walking in, hoping maybe this was going to be a, like an under the radar covert discussion. And instead the house is full of people. And now he can't like, he has no longer any plausible deniability. But when he's in the room, Cornelius recounts what has happened. And Peter begins to preach what the gospel of Acts would call, or what the book of Acts would call the gospel. And here's what Peter says to them in Acts 10, 34. Then Peter began to speak to them. I truly understand that God shows no partiality, but in every people, anyone who fears him and practices righteousness is acceptable to him. Now, fear here does not mean, does not being afraid of. It's, It's more this idea of reverence. Those who revere him and practices justice are acceptable to him. You know, the message he sent to the people of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. The message spread throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John announced, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses to all that he did both in Judea and Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and allowed him to appear, not to all the people, but to those who were chosen by God as witnesses and who ate and drank, with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one ordained by God as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him and everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Peter sort of launches into this sermon. And then something interesting happens. What happens next is what is called Gentile Pentecost. Because as these Jewish followers of Jesus are gathered in this home of this Gentile Roman centurion, These Gentiles have an experience similar to the experience that Peter and his friends had in Acts chapter 2. Just in the same way, the Spirit indwelled them in dramatic ways. So the Spirit arrives to Cornelius and his family. Here's how the story continues. While Peter was still speaking, the Holy Spirit fell on all those who heard the word. This is great. I I remember when I first started preaching, I grew up in an altar call tradition. And just the idea, if you're a preacher, and instead of giving the altar call, like mid-sermon, people just start running toward the front, like that means you're, you're really cooking. And it seems like Peter's really cooking here. He gives this sermon. The spirit falls upon those who hear the word. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astounded that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. Like there's this moment like, whoa, whoa, whoa. we didn't expect this with them. We expected it for us. We didn't think this would happen for them in the same way. We thought we had sort of our own little deal going on here. And instead, it seems like they are also part of this thing. They were astounded the Holy Spirit had poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter said, can anyone withhold the water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? So he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. They invited him to stay for several days. There's this moment where this big dramatic thing's happened, and Peter says, okay, okay, okay. I know this is outside of the playbook. I know this is not what we expected. But you've seen it. You've seen the evidence in the lives of these folks that God is with them, that God is working in them, that God is doing something through them. Can anybody here protest to them being baptized? Now here's what you have to understand, Um, that the presence of the spirit in Cornelius and his family challenged the way that Peter and his friends had understood the world to be carved up. And this is not uh, a Christian versus Jewish discussion. This is an intra-family debate for them. Peter and his friends, these followers of Jesus, were thoroughly through and through Jewish. Peter would never have claimed to have converted to another religion. Actually, Christianity didn't even exist within his lifetime. I think you can make a strong case that what we call Christianity today began in the 4th century in the 300s, perhaps. Maybe a little before, maybe the 3rd century, but definitely not in the time of Peter and those who actually knew Jesus. This is an inter-family debate, a Jewish discussion. And Peter says to them, who can withhold the water of baptism from them? Now, this is a callback to something that happened a little bit earlier in Acts. It's a callback to chapter eight. And it's a story that involves a disciple named Philip And this Ethiopian eunuch, Um, and this person, the Ethiopian eunuch, would have been other in every sense, likely a Gentile um, from another place, a person of another race, a a sexual minority, uh, and a person who, according to the traditions and texts that Peter and his friends would have grown up with, that Philip would have grown up with, meant that this particular person could not go into the temple and worship, which means this person could not go into the ritual baths, purify himself, and go into the temple and worship. And as he's coming back from Jerusalem, from likely a failed attempt at at experiencing that encounter, he's reading a text from Isaiah. Philip walks up, they have a discussion. The Ethiopian eunuch almost converts immediately. And here's the text from Acts chapter eight that I find so interesting and so connected to Acts chapter 10. As they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here is water. What is to prevent me from being baptized? Do you hear that question? What? is to prevent me, what's what's, what's gonna stop me? Is it possible that he came from a place where he'd just been stopped? And this Ethiopian eunuch doesn't think he's converting to Christianity. Again, it doesn't exist. He's saying, if I want to connect with the Jewish God in this way, is there anything barring me from full membership? Is there anything barring me from all the rights and all the rituals, and all the belonging. And in that moment, Philip has to make a decision. And I love what he does. He doesn't call the church council. He doesn't float it among some of the heavy hitters who can make the decision. He commands the chariot to stop, and both of them go down into the water, and Philip baptizes him. He doesn't stop to figure out and get the pulse of the organization. He sees a person before him who is longing to belong, who is asking what is to prevent me from belonging. Reminds me of that line from Acts chapter 10 that Peter just said, after the spirit fell on Cornelius and his household, can anyone withhold the water of baptism from these people? You have seen the evidence of the spirit in their lives. Can anyone say that they should not be fully participating and belonging in this community that's following Jesus? Writer Jack Rogers said that this particular Ethiopian eunuch was the first Gentile convert to Christianity, and he's from a sexual minority, a different race, ethnicity, and nationality. He's essentially transgressing all the boundaries I just want to say this on the off chance. I know there's probably not a great chance, but if you happen to be watching this, whether it's like live on the Sunday it premieres or whether it's 20 years from now and you maybe find it somewhere on YouTube, if you are a non-affirming pastor or a non-affirming Christian watching this or listening to this, I truly believe in the same way that the the Ethiopian eunuch stood before uh, Philip and the same way Cornelius stood before Peter, they are standing, our queer Christian siblings are standing before you asking the same questions. Who can withhold baptism from us? Who can withhold belonging from us? Who can withhold marriage from us? Who can withhold the full rights and privileges of membership from us? And I realize that if you are a pastor watching this, you face pressures in your livelihood. I get it all, trust me, I get it. But those queer Christian siblings of ours are simply looking for the experience they've already had to be acknowledged. They have already experienced Jesus. They have already encountered the spirit. They do not need your permission. They also need you to get out of the way of their belonging. And perhaps you find yourself in the shoes of Philip and Peter today, and you're wondering, gosh, what do I do? What do I do? You do what they did and you affirm your Christian siblings. It is what Jesus would do. It is what the Spirit is calling us to do. Pentecost means the church must always be open to reimagination and reformation. It always strikes me as odd that the sort of the motto for the Reformation was always reforming, and yet we've acted like it stopped. Always reforming, but not really. In reality, this thing called the Christian tradition is always unfolding, it's always expanding, it's always being transformed, and it requires our regular participation in that ongoing reimagining, reframing, reclaiming, and reformation. And here's what I think is evident in these stories the Spirit doesn't do all the work. The Spirit prompts, the Spirit calls, the Spirit leads. And then these people, human beings in flesh and blood, have to decide what they'll do with it. The Spirit is calling them beyond their boundaries, beyond what they have known, and they have to decide, will they follow the Spirit into the unknown or will they double down and resist it in fear? Will they lean in or will they lean away? That's the question. Will they they allow their experience of the Spirit and of these human beings before them who clearly have had an experience of God Well, they allow that to transform them to go back to their scriptures and say, gosh, we must've missed it. We must've missed it. I know we must've missed it because if we hadn't missed it, we wouldn't have missed this. These siblings in front of us who clearly have had the experience of the divine, we wouldn't have left them out, excluded them, marginalized them if we had really gotten it. And I think that's what the spirit continues to do today. Spirit invites us through our experiences, through our experiences of the world, through experiences of other people, through through however the Spirit shows up and moves in mysterious ways. To be open, to open our heart to the experience, and then to go back to our tradition and our text and wrestle with how we possibly could have missed it when God is clearly moving and working in the lives of these beautiful human beings. I bet many of us have experienced that jolt. That's what the Spirit does, I think. It sort of provides the jolt. They provide, she provides the jolt that challenges what we've always thought we've known. And then we have to work out what it might mean and how we're going to lean in. Peter is in Joppa, just like Jonah was in Joppa, and he's having to decide, will I go away from those I fear and away from my enemies, or will I go toward them? And I think that question is still asked of us. And of course, the working out of this, uh, these implications that it doesn't happen in a vacuum, it's done in community, right? That's what Peter does in this moment. He stands around and he goes, Okay, you saw what I saw. Who can prevent this baptism from happening? Um, it's just this beautiful moment of sort of collective getting it that happens, which leads me to a few uh, takeaways when it comes to maybe what the Spirit is about. First, I think the Spirit is always calling us beyond fear and into curiosity. I think that's the thing. So many of us were taught to be afraid and that curiosity was the enemy when instead of when we experience something we have never known before, what if we, like Moses in the burning bush, what if we curiously, in curiosity say, I'm going to go over and see what's going on with this thing. What, What if our first response is not, this is outside of my understanding and I need to fear it. What if our first response was, oh, interesting. Maybe I have some questions. Maybe I need to pay attention. Maybe I need to listen. Maybe I need to be present and see exactly what the Spirit might be doing in this moment. The Spirit calls us beyond fear and into curiosity. I think the Spirit also calls us beyond our exclusionary boundaries and into a radically inclusive hospitality. That's throughout Scripture. Um, Yes, there are divergent voices, but, but in my reading, the overwhelming push through Scripture is toward more radically inclusive hospitality. It's what Paul gets out in Galatians when he says, look, in these communities of Jesus followers, there is... Neither male nor female. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither enslaved or free. You are all equal in the eyes of God. That's a profound claim, a powerful claim today. But my gosh, in the ancient world. And look, I want to say this too. Um, this can this this statement can be twisted and, perf- and and pushed in ways. So here's what I'm going to say. A yes always equals a no. So when you say yes to be inclusive, to whatever groups of people you're inclusive to, that may mean you're being a little exclusive in other ways. Here's what I mean. I don't think there's anything as a fully inclusive church. Because if you choose as a community to side on the right side of history and be inclusive of our LGBTQ plus siblings, then that might mean that people who are not inclusive, people who are homophobic, people who are hateful and bigoted, they may not feel as welcome in your community. I think that's okay. If you choose to stand against racism and white supremacy, That may mean that people who choose to be racist and white supremacists may not feel as welcome and comfortable in your community. If you choose to stand against the evil of Christian nationalism, it may mean that those who tout that ideology may feel a little squirmy when you're talking. I think that's okay. Sometimes people self-select out. But I think the call of Jesus is to continually find those who have been marginalized, pushed out, forgotten, excluded, harmed, traumatized, and to bring them into their rightful place. You're not doing favors. You're actually repenting and getting out of the way. And then finally, I think the spirit calls us to continually reimagine and repent. That word repent is fallen on hard times because it has been co-opted by people who use it in mean and hateful ways. The word repent really just means to change your mind. Um, One of my girls has been changing her mind a lot lately, and it sort of looks something like this. When she tells you what she wants in the breakfast line at McDonald's and you order it, by the time you get to the window, she's changed her mind. (laughs) Um, But when you order whatever drink she's wanted, by the time you get it, she's changed her mind. She's in this stage of figuring out who she is and what she wants and at some point in life she's going to be told that oh changing your mind's the problem. You have an opinion, you change your mind, that means you're wishy-washy. You you have an opinion, you change your mind, that means you're not strong, that means you're not you're not consistent, that means you're not brave. And actually, I think one of the most brave and courageous things we could ever do is go, I was wrong. I had disinformation, I made this decision. I have better information, I made a better decision. When you when you have better information, you have better choices. You make better choices. And I think the spirit is continually inviting us to keep our hearts open. And that as we keep our hearts open, and this has been my experience over the last 20 years for sure, as our hearts remain open, there are going to be moments again and again where we go, oh, I thought I'd figured that out, but wow, was I off base. I thought I knew what was right on that. And gosh, now I realize that I've been a part of the wrong thing. I thought like Peter, I was upholding what God wanted. And what I realize is that God has been on the side of all God's children the whole time. To be a person who is alive and engaged with the Spirit is to be a person who is regularly with open heart, reimagining, reframing, and repenting and being open to the new thing that God might be doing right under our noses. And maybe we just never noticed it before. That phrase, well, I've never thought of it that way. I've never heard it that way for so much of my life. That was a conversation ender. Well, it can't be true. I've never thought of it that way. All I want to invite us to reframe that and think of it like this. I've never thought of it that way. What a gift to be given a better perspective. What a gift to have your eyes opened, your heart opened to something new and beautiful that maybe the Spirit is up to that you never had imagined before.